theyeshiva.net. Okay, good evening, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi Kiva. Thank you, Rabbi Lowy. Thank you, <coughs> Rabbi Sroll. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody who's gracing us here from Toronto, my dearest friends, brothers, and sisters from Toronto, wherever you're joining us the world over. I welcome all of you to this special evening, and I am very grateful and thrilled for the privilege of addressing this extraordinary organization and movement of Taimche Shabbos in Toronto, dedicated to feeding all of the needy and making sure every family has what they need for Shabbos, for Yom Tov, for every night of the week, with dignity, grace, and so much generosity, love, and kindness. I was asked by the organizers that following the address, we should open this up to questions. So we're going to do that. And you can either unmute yourself and ask your question, or you can post your question. If you're on Zoom, you could post your question on chat. And uh, I think I already see a few questions. Okay, I see some comments. You could post your question on chat. It can be anonymous if you wish, and I will take at least some of the questions. Those who are watching on theyeshiva.net, you can post your uh, questions there. And Blineder, I will take some questions from there as well. I know this event, Taimche Shabbos of Toronto, and this special annual event taking, taking place this year on Zoom is, decade, is dedicated in the loving memory of an unforgettable young girl, who was taken from us at such a young age, tragically, on Chaf Aleph Adr, the 21st day of Adr, Tovshin Nun Tess. That's uh, 1999. Rucham of Freidel, Bas Rabbi Yisrael Yehuda Zlotnik, Zlotnik, Zechroin Levracha, who was a young girl and tragically killed in that accident, which uh, her family and friends still grieve for her, yet her smile, her love, her grace, the kindness, the unity, and the goodness she brought into the world among her family, among her peers, among her community, still lives on and inspires so many and is evident from this event taking place right now here with many, many hundreds and hundreds of Jews. I see here on Zoom there's close to 400 people, and I know on the website, on the yeshiva.net, there's a few hundred people, and on some other outlets, wherever they are. So this is a tribute to her memory, and may Ruchama Freidel, Zechreinah Levracha, continue to serve as a beacon, of light, of blessing, and of inspiration for her dear parents, for her whole mishpach, her whole family, all of her relatives, all of her friends, the whole community, and all of the Jewish people. And of course, anybody who knows a little bit of Toronto Jewish life know that Rebubu and Esti Zlatnik, Rabbi Yisrael Yehuda and Esti Zlatnik are pillars of chesed, of kindness in the Toronto community. And uh, 
and continue to be beacons of so much hope and so much generosity and so much light. And to you, Rebubu and Esti, I say that uh, may God give you the strength to be able to continue your extraordinary work and the extraordinary chesed and love that you share with so many. And may you experience only simcha and nachas in the family with a lot of health and happiness and prosperity. L'arichis yamim, v'shanim toivis, amen ken Also dedicated this evening in memory of another very special young woman and a pillar of kindness and generosity, Chanamalka Weissman, of blessed memory, Tehenish Masatsuribitzer Hachayim, may she be a continuous source of inspiration and a good to better for her loved ones, family, the whole community, all of the Jewish people, and the whole world. It's always a pleasure for me to be with Tronto, the Tronto Jewish community, one of the greatest communities in the world. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but anyone who lives in Tronto knows that it's the truth. Toronto has a very close place to me in my heart because my late grandfather, whose name was Simon, Rip Simon Yakabashvili, was a Georgian Jew arrested by Stalin during the purges of 38-39, tortured horrifically, exiled to Siberia, made it out of the Soviet Union on false papers with his wife and three children, ultimately got papers to serve as a rabbi in Toronto at the end of 1951, December 51, my grandfather and his young family arrived on a boat coming from Europe to Canada. Sadly, my grandfather fell ill soon after and he died in 1953, followed a year later by the death of his wife. And both of them are buried in the old Eitzchayim Cemetery in Toronto. That's Roslyn off Bathurst, for those who know the, geog- the geography. And whenever I come to Toronto, at least till Corona, I tried whenever I can to stop off at the cemetery at the graves of my Zayda and Bob, also Freda, Freda and Simon, Yakabashvili or Jacobson as the new name became. And uh, so my father, my late father and his two little brothers lived there for a little while. Ultimately, their parents passed away and they all relocated. They came to uh, this part of town, what we call New York. And uh, so Toronto has a very uh, close place, is very dear to me. And especially when one sees the achievements of the community in Toronto, of all of the different communities, Jews of so many different backgrounds and persuasions and affiliations and walks of life. But there's a camaraderie, there's a sense of purpose, mission, a drive and ambition. And to see the extraordinary infrastructure of Yiddishkeit, of Torah, Avoidig, Milos Chasadim, that has been created in Toronto over the last half a century, is really more than a half a century, but especially over the last half century, is incredibly inspiring and moving. I know, unfortunately, we can't be physically close, but we're always spiritually close and virtually close. And as Rabbi Kiva said, Gamzum Latoiva. So I am very thrilled and honored to be with you all, with all of you here in Toronto for Time Cheshabbos. Of Toronto. There's a beautiful story that I'd love to begin with. I saw, I read this story uh, many years ago. It was uh, shared by uh, by Reb Zalman Saratskin. 
Reb Zalman Sarotskin, Zechit Tzadik Levracha, was the very well-known rabbi of Slutsk, Lithuania, Belarus, before the war. He ultimately made it to Yisrael, where he passed away in the 1960s, I think 1966, and he's the author of the famous commentary on Chumash called Oznayim Latayda. He's one of the well-known Lithuanian great giants of Jewish wisdom and scholarship. And Reb Zalman Sarotskin shared the following story. It was about his father-in-law. His father-in-law was a Jew named Hagar Reb Eliezer Gordon, who was the Telzerov, the rabbi of Tels in Lithuania, and he is the founder of the famous Telzer, Telzer Yeshiva, which t- today was, of course, relocated to America, to Cleveland, and other locations that have branches of Tells. But the original Tells in Lithuania, the yeshiva was founded by the Blazer Gordon. He needed money. He needed funds to support the yeshiva. And he went to Kiev. He traveled to Kiev in the Ukraine, and he visited the home of a very, very wealthy and affluent Jew. And the Jew opens the door, and he sees the famous Telzerov, who was well-known, and he greets him. And he says, Rebbe, how can I be here for you? How can I help you? The Blazer Gordon says, I need money for the yeshiva. I need you to help me support the yeshiva. So he says, Rebbe, how much would you like? And he asks for a sum of 5,000 ruble. An astronomical sum. You know, so I'll come to your house and knock on your door. You'll open the door and I say, you know, I need a check for $9 million. Well, 5,000 ruble was not $9 million, but it was an astronomical sum, especially for those days, talking about the 19th century. The man was astounded. He says, you're probably making a joke. (laughs) So Dav Gordon says, listen, if I wanted to make jokes, I could have stayed home and tells. I didn't come here all the way to Kiev to make jokes. I'm very serious. The wealthy Jew was not stupid. He says, Rebbe, we all know that you're a genius. You're a gone in learning. You're, you're a great Talmud Chachim. You're a great scholar. What makes somebody a great mind? Oh, the ability to always be able to see different sides. What makes you a skilled teacher of Gemara? You can explain both sides of the argument. Sometimes three sides, four sides, five sides. And explain every perspective and show your students the validity of every perspective to the point that they should be convinced that that is the proper perspective. Now, we have your two sides. You're coming to me and saying you want 5,000 ruble. That's your side, and you're very serious. I'm very serious when I say that it's irrational. It's a joke. It doesn't make sense. So do me a favor. Can you explain both perspectives and both sides, and then we'll see who's right. So the blazer says, of course, I'll explain to you both sides very well. He says, everybody knows the mitzvah in Parshas Bechukosai, the end of Sefer Vayikra, known as the mitzvah of Maiser Behema. Maiser Behema is the tithing that we are obligated to contribute from our animals. And the Torah describes and the Chazal describe <coughs> how this process is done. Basically, a person has to bring in all the new sheep, all the new flock into a pen and have a door that is narrow, only allows for the exit of one animal at a time, and he opens this narrow door, and each one 
of the new animals, of the new sheep, pass the door, and the person counts, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and when it comes to ten, he dyes it with a little red color, and this is called Meiser Behema. We speak about it every morning, Habchar, Vameiser, Vapesach, which is brought to the Beis HaMikdash, it's offered as a carbon to Hashem, this is one of ten. Now I want to ask you a question, he says. Wealthy Jews had an enormous amount of flock that were born that year. Enormous amount. To the point that the Gemara tells us in Mesech Shabbos, Daf Nundalit, that Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah, you know how much his Maise Behemah was? You know the number of his tithing that he would give from his animals every year? 12,000 calves a year, which was 10%. 10% of what he now owned, 12,000 calves, because he had calves of cows and sheep and goats. So this means that Rebbe ben Azariah had to have 120,000 sheep pass through the narrow door. 120,000 sheep. And count them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10. 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10. 1, 2, why does the Torah make him do this? What's the point? Do you know how much time it takes? Do you know how much effort it takes? He knew how many calves he had. He knew that this year, in his property, there are 120,000 new calves. Fine! Take 12,000 calves and bring them to Yerushalayim and Chassal said the Pesach. Why the Muchinish? Why the need to make a person work so hard, so exhausting? take so much exertion and ever. Why do this? Imagine you have $120,000 in singles. Now I make you count every single one. One, two, three, four, five, six, ten you put away. If you know how much money there is, just take 10%. If you don't know how much money, you don't know how much money. But if you know how much money, take 10% and you're done. The wealthy man tells your blazer, Gordon, it's a good question. Excellent question. And especially I appreciate it because I know how precious the time of a wealthy person is. We don't waste our time. Every moment is accounted for. And because I know how much precious every minute and every hour is, this question is even more astounding. Why the Torah would make us do this? So the Telzer Rosh Shiva says, I'll explain to you, my friend. If we would come to a wealthy Jew, and we would say, if we would come to a wealthy Jew, and we would tell the wealthy Jew, you know, I want you to take 12,000 calves and give it for charity. <laughs> give it for the Kayanim. Give it for the Beis HaMikdash. Give it to the Rebbe Nishalaylam. Crazy? 12,000 12,000 calves to give away for tzedakah? You couldn't do it. So the Rabbi Nishalaylam says, let me tell you how to do it. You stand near a door, and the entrance is narrow, and let each calf walk through. And then you go like this. One is mine. Two, mine. Three, mine. Four, mine. Five, mine. Six, mine. Seven, mine. Eight, mine. Nine, mine. Ten? I give for charity. Aha! 
Now there's a different perspective. Now you'll give it away with simcha, with joy. You suddenly realize that the creator of the world has given you so much. You can take 10% and give it away for the needy. Says the Talzer Rosh Hashiva, this is the root of the debate between you and I. I come to you and I say, I want 5,000 rubles for the yeshiva tells. You are terrified, you're astounded, you're startled. Nobody asked you for such an amount to give away for charity. He says, okay, no problem, I get it. Let's do my sabahema. Let's go through all the money that you make. Let's go through how much does this factory bring in? How much does this factory bring in? How much does this factory bring in? How much do these homes bring? How much do these buildings bring? How much do these stocks bring? Let's count. Let's go through. And the affluent says, stop, stop. Enough, Rebbe. You don't have to continue counting. I got the message. And he gave him the donation. It, of course, underscores that powerful truth in Judaism. To show appreciation. And the first and best way to show appreciation is by sharing, by giving. The Balshamtiv once said a Jew puts his hand in his pocket or her hand in her pocket, pocketbook, and takes out a coin. We'll call it a, a dime, a quarter. What's the coin? What does the coin remind of us? The, uh, what does the coin remind, of us, remind us of? It reminds us of the letter Yud. It's a small seminal point, little round circle. That's the Yud. You take the coin, you put it in your, the palm of your hand. Palm of your hand is a hay. Looks like a hay, and there's five fingers, so hay is five. So now you have the Yud and the hay. You stretch out your arm, and you give the coin to a poor person. So now you have a vav. Because as your arm is extended, you see you have a vav. And you place it into the palm of the poor man or the poor woman, you have another hey. So what happens? You just created yud, hey, vav, hey. You brought the divine energy into the world. And Hashem told the students, therefore make sure that you give the money before the poor person asks, for you, asks it for you. Because once he stretches out his arm, so now the vav is going to precede the Yud. You're already mixing up the energy. Because we know that Shem Havaya Kesidrei, Yud Ke when it's in order, that is the most powerful energy in the world. When it's out of order, it's still great, but it's not the same. So he said, you stretch out your hand first. You take that coin first. You have the Yud and the hay and the Vav and the hay. If he stretches out his arm first, you have the Vav before the hay. They say from the first Belzeruv, the Sar Shalom of Belzeruv, Shalom Belz. He said, the Torah says in Parshish Re'eh, Don't uh, close up your heart. Don't be stingy in your heart. And then the Torah continues words that he said seem superfluous. Seem superfluous. Don't close your heart. And then don't close your hand. Don't clinch your hand. Abstaining from giving money to your poor brother. And then the Torah continues, You should open your hand to him and give him, give him charity. Asks the Sar Shalom of Bells, it seems so superfluous, so, so many unnecessary words. It says, don't keep your heart closed. Don't be stingy. 
Don't keep your heart tight and contrite. Open up your hands. What does it have to repeat? Don't close your hands. So he says, sometimes you can have an open heart and an open hand and you give. You can have an open heart and you give, but your hands are still closed. And he said, when your hands are open, you see the end of every finger is different. Where my thumb ends is one their place. Every single finger ends at a different place. The index finger, the pinky, the th- every finger doesn't end in the same space. When you close it, everything ends in the same place. So he says, you have a person who gives, but they give to everybody equally. They're not sensitive to the individual needs of a person. It's like when you have children in a family. What one child needs is not what another child needs. There are different languages of love. There are different emotional, psychological, spiritual, financial, physical needs of different people. It says, don't just open your heart and don't just give. It's not only enough that don't close your hands when you give. Don't just treat everybody equally. Okay, I give everybody a check. I don't distinguish. I don't discriminate. Just, here's the stuck and, and leave me alone. He says, no, tune in to the needs, to the sensitivities of the human being. And here, my dearest friends, we come to what I think is a very powerful, powerful insight into the work of Tamche Shabbos and into our role as Jews. It's a question that's already thousands of years old. It comes from the Medrash. The first time the mitzvah of tzedakah is introduced in Chumash. It's introduced by a strange term. Not the first time the mitzvah of tzedakah is introduced, but one of the major times it's introduced, it's introduced with a strange term. Shem tells Moshe, David al-Bnei Yisrael, litruma. The Jews should take a contribution from me. They don't take a contribution from me. litruma. They give a contribution. If I tell you here, Go to my friend Chaim Yankel, right? You say, go to my friend and take a contribution from him. But Hashem is saying, so I'm not going to say, I take, take, a, take a contribution from him and give it to Toim Cheshabbos of Toronto. I don't say, take a contribution to Toim Cheshabbos of Toronto. You take it from somebody and you give it to them. Should have said, yes, they take it from their house, they take it from their assets, they take it from their bank account, but they give it. You don't take it. You take it in order to give it. We call it not The poor person takes the tzedakah. The, the giver gives the tzedakah. They should give me truma. This is the famous question that Medrash Rabbah already raises. And it's raised by many commentators and the Mepharshim over the generations. What is the meaning of this? Medrash Rabbah says the simple meaning is God says all the money is mine. And therefore don't think you're taking your own, you're ultimately taking it from me. So now you're not giving it to you're giving it to me, but you're also taking it from me. That's the most basic, famous answer given in the Medrash. The Alshech, Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, in his famous commentary, Teiras Moshe, he was from Tzvas, 16th century Tzvas, and the Alshech, who was born in the year 1508, and he passed away in the year 1593, and he's buried in the old cemetery of Tzvas, near his contemporaries, the Arizal, 
Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, Rabbi Yosef Karo, etc. He was one of the great sages, Kabbalists, uh, one of the great sages and biblical commentators in Svas in the 16th century. He presents another very interesting answer. The Gemara says, in Kedushin Davzayin, and the Rambam brings it Lalach and Hilchasishus and Hilchanarach. When a man betrothes a woman, the system is that the man gives the woman something that's worth money, and he betrothes her, and they enter into the covenant of marriage. As we do today under the chuppah, the chassan places a ring on the finger of the colour. What happens if she gives him the money? Instead of him giving her the ring, she gives him the ring. Instead of him giving her money or something that's worth money, she gives him. It's not good. It's not valid. She could give him a gift. That's wonderful. But in order to create kedushin, to create betrothal halachically, he has to give her. He has to give her. And that's how they enter into the covenant of marriage. But there's an exception. The Gemara says, what happens if her husband, if the groom happens to be an extraordinarily prominent person, that people feel, feel privileged to be able to give this person something? Knowing that this person took something from you makes you feel privileged. Then, if she gives him a gift, she could be betrothed by that. Why? So the Gemara says... Because Ba'adam Chashef, when you're talking about an extraordinarily prominent person, the fact that she knows that he took something from her gives her such pleasure, such ecstasy, such delight. That's worth money. <laughs> such pleasure is worth money. Knowing that she had the privilege of giving him something and he took it from her, and he took it from her gracefully, that itself is the greatest gift that he can give her. By taking, he gives a tremendous gift to her. She got something so special from him, and that's the knowledge that he took. So even though she gave, halachically, she gave, but it's considered that she took, she received. Says the al something very powerful. The notion that man can give something to God is incredible. It's more absurd than saying that an ant can provide a multi-million dollar gift to a human being. Here you have the creator of the universe, eternal, infinite, limitless, saying to us, I want your contribution. I need your gold. I need your silver. I need your copper. I need your checks. You can do something for me. There is no gift in the world like the gift of knowing that my giving is meaningful and significant to the creator of the world. I am giving a contribution, but I'm, what I'm really doing is I'm taking a contribution. I'm giving a contribution, but I'm taking a contribution. Just by the knowledge of knowing that God is so eager to take something from me. This also, I think, extends, though, to another dimension. And this is the explanation in Svasemes, Svasemes, Parshas Truma, next week's Parsha, Tafri Shlamet Beis, and other Mepharshim. There's a famous Medrash, a Medrash Rabbi in Rus, Rabbi Yeshua taught. Rus, 
is an impoverished, homeless widow, a convert who comes from Moab. She has no money. And she goes to the field of Boyaz, who provides her with grain that she ultimately uses to sustain herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi wants to know the name of the man who was so kind to her. And she says, The name of the person for whom I did something today. Major says, for whom I did something today? He did something for me. I didn't do something for him. Says Rabbi Yeshua, Far more than what the benefactor does for the poor person, the poor person does for the benefactor. That's why Ruth doesn't say, the man who did things for me today. He, she doesn't say, Asher asa imi. I have done amazing things for him and giving him and given him tremendous benefits because he has given me one loaf of bread. What Rus is saying, the Medrash explains, is when we give, we get, and we get much more than we ever give. When we give, our lives are elevated to a higher, more dignified, more divine plane. Of course I'm giving. But Fascinating thing. So this from Rav Shleimer Breuer, Zechreiner Levracha from Frankfurt. Rav Breuer writes that the first time the Torah discusses giving is Parshas Vayera. Avram Avinu sees the three Bedouin guests who are really angels. And of course he invites them to the tent to relax under the shade. And he gives them this lavish meal. When we look at the story, we see an anomaly. Four times in the story the Torah repeats the phrase, taking. Let water be taken. I will take bread. He takes yogurt and milk. He takes, he takes the young calf. What type of expression is this? Avram Avinu should have said, I will give water. Not yukach namat maim. I will give water. Not ekchapas lechem. I will give bread. True. In order to give it, you have to take it. You have to fetch it in order to give it. But the focus is not, I'm going to take it. I'm going to give it to you. I'll first take it in order to give it to you. But Avram Avinu is teaching and guiding us for all future generations. My children, you have to know that when you help somebody else, you're not only giving, you're taking. The greatest gift you can give yourself is a life filled with love and caring towards another human being more than the host does for the guest. The guest does for the host. I think it's Winston Churchill's line who said, we make a living by what we get. But we make a life by what we give. They say that somebody asked Sir Moshe Montefiore, Moses Montefiore, how much money he's worth this year. And he said, 400,000 pounds. They said, oh, come on. You made so much more. Don't say the truth. He said, you didn't ask me how much I made. You asked me how much I'm worth. So I told you the amount that I gave for charity this year. If you would have asked me how much I made this year, I would have given you a different number. You asked me how much I'm worth this year. I told you 400,000 pounds. A person is worth that which he or she is ready 
to share with others. That's the v'yikcholi truma. Yes, you're giving, but you're taking. We are worth what we're willing to share with others. Take a contribution. You're giving, but you're receiving equally, if not much more, than what you're giving. However, my dearest friends, I think there's one more aspect here that I would like to touch upon very briefly and then conclude with a story. And this has to do with something that's maybe a little sensitive. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble by talking about this, but I think it's good to talk about. You know, there are things that we believe consciously and there are things that we believe subconsciously. Things that we believe consciously we can discuss. (laughs) Things that we believe subconsciously are ingrained in our psyches. We can't even discuss it because... They're like behind everything. You know, it's like an operating system that sits quietly in your computer, but it's the framework in which we operate. When it comes to Yiddishkeit, there are two components of Yiddishkeit. There are the things that we talk about, we articulate, we argue, we debate, we discuss, we engage in. But then there is the frame in the background. The silent operating system in which all of our Yiddishkeit lives And we sometimes don't realize what that operating system consists of, what it's made up of. For this, we have to go to a a much deeper place. One of the ingrained beliefs in many of us, and I think many of us really struggle with this, and it may not be conscious always, is a belief that I think essentially is alien to Judaism, but has been absorbed from our environment and has been absorbed by many years of of challenges and difficulties. And that is that God is somehow unhappy if you're happy. I remember after a lecture, pre-corona in Muncie, I was giving my weekly woman's lecture, which today went over to uh, virtual communication. We have our weekly, our weekly lectures live on theyeshiva.net. So our woman's lecture is now virtually uh, Tuesday mornings on theyeshiva.net. But before this, it was live. And I remember a woman came over to me. And said, Robert Jameson, I have to speak to you. And she shared with me something that was very painful. She said, I'm frightened. I'm distressed. I said, Why? She said, because I know that something very, very bad is going to happen to me. I said, why? Why do you think so? She said, because I've had a great week. The week was so good. And that means for sure that God is planning something. Because I can't have such consistent happiness in my life. And I am frightened. What is about to befall me? It was so painful to hear. In her mind, if she was miserable, chas v'shalem, the rabbinu shalalem was somehow content. If he was happy, there was right away a problem in heaven. Hmm. How do we ruin this person's life? How do we destroy this person's life? Friends, this is a pagan idea. And the way this Fasemis puts it, the one word, V'yikchu, 
יוקח נמת מים, ואקח פס לחם, ויקח חמא וחלב, ויקח בן בוקר אך וטייף, ויקחו לי תרומה. That one word is trying to extricate from us this entrenched pagan belief. You see, pagan culture, pagan literature, is replete with the concept that man and his gods are engaged in a zero-sum game. And they are in a bitter competition for the finite resources of both heaven and earth. In pagan culture, and from pagan culture it went over even to monotheistic cultures, because things that are ingrained for thousands of years in people's minds, it's not easy to emancipate yourself from them. But basically, there was a battle of the gods, and there's a battle between gods and humans. That's why, how do you translate the word carbon? We translate the word carbon as a sacrifice. I have to sacrifice. Now, it's an accurate translation, but it comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with a lot of psychological associations that if I'm sacrificing, then I'm in a good place. If I'm not sacrificing, I must be a really narcissistic, selfish person and in a bad place. The pagan idea is that there's a powerful God who would be appeased if I bring him or her as many resources as I can. You want my resources? You want fertility? You want rain? You want health? You want money? You want life? No problem. Let's make an exchange. You sacrifice something that's dear to you. You sacrifice your money. You sacrifice your health. You sacrifice your happiness. You sacrifice your life. And then I'll make sacrifices. But you know, if you hold on to everything, you're going to get me jealous. And if you get me jealous, I'm going to strike you down in anger. We have, to re, we have to reshape the brain. The word carbon, it says in Sefer Habayr, one of the earliest Kabbalistic works from, from the time of the Tanoim, Rebbe Nuchunye ben Akana. Carbon is Meloshen Kiruv. Carbon means to get close. In other words, the word sacrifice could actually be understood in a way that runs very contrary to the definition of a carbon. The word carbon is karev. In other words, it's something which brings me closer. Closer to what? Closer to our source of infinite benefit, to our ability to constantly take and take and take more. When God says, I want you to give, I want you to get close to me, what are you getting close to? You're getting close to yourself. You're getting close to the Ein Soif. What is Hashem? God is not a pagan God living in heaven, competing over resources and getting jealous when I am happy. Ein Oid Malvadai. Hashem is Ein Soif, infinity. God is the source of life, of reality, of energy, of love, of money, of goodness, of kindness, of all good things. He is Ein Soif. Getting close to Hashem means getting close to what? getting close to the infinite source of goodness, getting close to the source and to our ability to constantly take more and more and more. Hashem wants you to be happy. He's your biggest fan. He wants you to celebrate life. 
He wants you to have everything you need. He wants you to be able to maximize your potentials, to flex your muscles, to actualize yourself, to suck the marrow out of life, to live life to the fullest, to have the most best marriages in the world, to have the best relationships with your children in the world, to have the best relationship with yourself in the world, to shine your light, to be an ambassador of infinity, an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and authenticity and wisdom and redemption. God wants you to be successful, not any less than your own healthy mother or father want you to be successful. He's not jealous of you. He's not miserable when you're happy. On the contrary, kalani meiroshi, kalani mizirai. Yes, life sometimes has challenges. Sometimes life is challenging. I have to open myself up to what it means to be in a relationship with infinity at that moment. Sometimes I have to let go of expectations and become a channel for a new type of energy that has to flow through me. But never see it as a message that's trying to crush you and penalize you and hurt you and repress you. On the contrary, the truma. I want you to get close, carbon, I want you to get close to the source from which you can take and take and take and take. And the reason for this is because what is Hashem? Hashem is the source of anything, of everything. He created the goodness of the universe out of Himself. And He is without any limit. Coming close to Hashem means coming close to a place where goodness becomes unlimited. I want to conclude with this story that happened a few years ago, and I thought it's very appropriate to share with to share this story to, on a night like tonight when we're celebrating the work of Temche Shabbos in Toronto. It happened in the winter of nineteen five seven seven six. 2006, there was an engagement ring, $9,000 engagement ring that a chassan and his family bought for a kala for a bride in Jerusalem. And this ring was lost. It wasn't just lost anywhere. It accidentally fell unnoticed into the trash. The bride, the kala, was holding on to the ring. This is a month before the wedding. And by mistake, it fell into the, to the dustbin. She realized her mistake. And the family realized that the ring must be in the trash and it was already in the trash dumpster. So they ran to the trash dumpster. And then they discover that it's already been taken away by a garbage truck. Now they are frantic. They call the municipality, and the municipality agrees to empty out the contents of the garbage truck which passed by their house near a warehouse of the city. The sister of the bride posts a note on various neighborhood bulletin boards and sends it around, I guess, through some form of social media that they had there, begging Jerusalemites for their assistance in finding the ring. Now, they have to find it in a garbage truck. You know what that's equivalent to. Go find the needle in the haystack. The sister writes, an engagement ring worth 6,000 pounds, $8,541 American dollars, 
belonging to a bride who will be getting married next month has been lost. Please, if anyone would agree to come to search for it inside the garbage truck, it's definitely in there, which is parked in Givat Shaul, a neighborhood in Jerusalem. Before long, news of the lost ring spreads across the internet. Dozens of volunteers spend hours searching through the contents of the garbage trunk. Garbage truck. Dozens of people volunteered their time and searched and searched to help a bride they do not know. Alas, it was to no avail. The ring was gone. Now, I could end this story right here. I made my punchline. The showing up of these strangers in my mind is an inspiration, as every Jewish speaker would now say, Mi Cha'amcha Yisrael. But the story actually doesn't end here. One jeweler, he heard of the anguish of the bride, offers to give her a replacement ring free of charge. He hears that she could not find the ring, and he says, I will replace the ring for free. I can end this story here. I made my punchline, as every good Jewish speaker will now say, me, Cha'amcha Yisrael. But it's actually not the end of the story. All this happened Thursday, February 4th, 2006. The next day, it's Friday afternoon, a man is walking by a trash dumpster in Geula, which is another neighborhood in Jerusalem. He discovers a ring besides the trash dumpster. There's no name on it, so he didn't know how to return it to the owner. He wants to fulfill the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, classic Hashavah Saveda, but there's no name. On Shabbos, the talk of the town, one of his family members mentions the story of the poor bride. And this man who found the ring in Gula on Friday puts the two and two together. After Shabbos, he returns the ring to the bride. Inherent in the DNA of our people is v'yikhu li truma. We give, but we know that we're giving what we received from God, number one. Number two, as the al puts it, the greatest privilege in the world is that you can do something for Hashem. And when I give tzedakah to a poor person or family in time Shabbos, I'm doing something for the creator of the world. And number three, v'yikchu. There's no receiving like the receiving that we get from giving constantly. Try it and you'll see it. It's true with money. It's true with love. It's true with kindness. It's true with time. Some of you remember Rabbi Yankel Galinsky, the famous Navardiker who used to give uh, exciting Musashmuz in the Bnei Brak. And Rabbi Yankel Galinsky once told a story. I like the story so much. I want to share it with you. But I just want to make sure I have it here. Rabbi Yankel Galinsky says, Azai. He was a child in the city Kirinik. The rabbi was Reb Chizkiyo Yosef Mishkovsky. And he turns to the children, Reb Yankel says, and he says, Kindalach, I want to ask you a question. This is the riddle. 
There were five candles burning. A man went and he extinguished two of the five. How many candles are left? And all the children, like in a choir, burst out. Three! And the rabbi said, no, 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 no. You guys made a mistake. Made a mistake. Two are left. The children didn't understand. What do you mean? You said there were five candles burning and a man came and extinguished two. So there's three left. Two and three is five. Why are you saying that two are left? And the rabbi looked at them and he said, very simple. You know what happened to the three? They continued to burn and burn and burn. And they were gone. There was nothing left. The only two candles that were left were the two that he extinguished. And he saved them from the fate that befell the other three candles. The rabbi looked at the children and he said, Kindalach. A person has a small amount of money. He gives it for tzedakah. He gives it to a poor person. It looks like he extinguished the flame. It looks like he's missing the money. But the truth is, the money I keep for myself, money comes, money goes. Money gets spent on everything and anything. The money I invested in tzedakah is eternal and timeless. Tzedakah Aymedas La'ad. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Y.Y. Inspirational, motivational, thoughtful, wrapped with words of all the Hasidic masters. Well, one second. Not only the Hasidic man, you forgot that Telzerov was not a Hasidic master. Reb Zalman Sarotskin was not a Hasidic master. Reb Chizkiyo Mishkovsky was not a Hasidic master. Reb Yankel Galinsky was not a Hasidic master. And the Alshech was not a Hasidic master. <laughs> From all the masters, including the Hasidic masters. Yeah. All the masters. I was going in the order of the ingredients. Thank you. Um, I, I'd like to give Tzadi Zlotnik a chance to introduce you and to speak. Afterwards? Uh, yeah, I'll do now. It's okay. That's okay. I'll say something. I don't know if my mother-in-law is still on. I have to make sure my mother-in-law goes back on before you start. <laughs> I'm sure she hasn't left. And it's still being recorded. <laughs> okay, Baruch Hashem. Thank you. You're still welcome to come to Toronto to visit the living. I'm going to come to Toronto to visit the living, of course. Thank you, Reb Tzadik, Reb Tzadi. Okay, question number one. What did you tell the lady who was worried that she was due to get some bad news now because good things were happening to her? I shared with the lady what I shared with you at this lecture. I think that we have, honestly, a deep ingrained fear that if things are good, they're going to be bad because somehow God does not want good to happen. If it's too good, it's like, let's get this guy. <laughs> it's like if, if things are really good, like if you're really happy, like if your marriage is, is amazing, if your children are amazing, you know, somebody has to get sick. Um, if you're making a good living, Baruch Hashem, you know, uh, you're from the few that Corona actually helped. So something else bad is going to happen. And I think it's, it's an erroneous belief and it's living in a very negative and very, very fearful space. And I explained to this woman, I said, you know, just give God the credit that you would give to yourself. If you see your child happy, you have an 11-year-old boy 
or a 13-year-old girl, and they're thriving in school, and they have good friends, and they're stable, and they're relaxed, and they're calm, and they're coming home happy, and they have a good social life, and and they're spending their time in, in productive and meaningful ways, and they're a source of nachas, would you look at this child and say, you know, things are going too good for her. Let me somehow try to destroy her life. I mean, I would call you a psychopath and a sadistic parent. So why are you attributing that? This is what I tried to explain to her. The source of all love, of all kindness, of all pleasure is God. But I think it's not really about words. I think this is this sits inside of us in a very deep way. That's the truth. Um, um, so, so, can I ask a question? Sure. Comment? First of all, I want to give you an Yishakaya for your sheer on um, Dustin and Aviram crossing your own private... Uh, Kriyas Yamsov. Diskin. Yeah, amazing. Not a Hasidic master by all means. First Briskerov. Shoreleib Diskin was the Rav of Brisk, Lomja, Kovna, Yerushalayim. You probably still get mail from the Diskin orphanage, no? That's right. Everybody does. <laughs> he founded it because there was a pandemic, pandemic in Jerusalem in the 1880s, 1890s, and he made then, there were so many orphans, he made, that's why you still get mail in Toronto from the Diskin orphanage. You mean even after the pandemic was over, the orphanage continues and the solicitation continues? Well, the, the orf- I don't know, it could be the orphanage still exists, but it certainly existed for a very long time. I don't know its status today. But this is his insight, that there was a special splitting of the sea for Dawson and Avira. I see more questions about Kiva. Should I continue? Yeah, so I, I want to just, uh, if you can comment, I know we're coming into Adar, if you can highlight three points of how to be marbe b'simcha. It's a nice concept. Provide three digestible, simple ways to achieve that. Okay. The first thing is, the Svasema says that other is a combination of two words. Aleph dar. It's actually even before the Moirinayim writes this, Hasidic masters. Reb Nachem of Chernobyl, the Moirinayim, the Svasema is the second gay Rebbe. Other is Aleph Dar, which means Aleph, Hashem, who's called Aleph, one, Echad, Aleph is living with the person. It's one of the great sources of joy when a person realizes that at every single moment, God is with me. I'm never alone. I'm never abandoned. He never throws me under the bus and casts me away. Even if there's a challenge in my life, I am facing this challenge with Hashem. As David HaMelech says, Even if I walk in the shadow of death, I will not fear evil because you're with me. So, says, When you can bring into your life this consciousness of other, of Alev Dar, that Hashem is with me at every single moment, this allows for a person to increase joy. I think a second meditation that would be helpful is that whatever we face in our life is never a random mistake. Basically, we are messengers. You're not a victim of your circumstances. You are a piece of infinity. 
You're a chelik elikami mal mamish, as it says in Tanya. You're a piece of Hashem. And it's God working through you who sent you into this situation in order to bring light into the darkness. So let's say I'm facing a challenge with my children or I'm facing a challenge with myself or with my marriage, with my spouse or with anything or anybody in my life. I can look at it in two ways. One way of looking at it is I am this nebuch case, this unfortunate victim who has been dealt this difficult plot, plot, this difficult, who's been dealt a sour, you know, a sour portion in life and I have to deal with it. Or you could see it very differently. You are a messenger of Hashem, to bring light into this situation. I am never traumatized. I am never full of darkness. I was sent into these places in order to bring light there. Some people have a lot of trauma in them. You have to always remember this. And this is back to the first point, Aleph Dar. You are not ever dirty or bad or sick or a victim or a target of somebody else's evil acts. We have pain in us, but we are not the pain. I may have trauma in me, but I am not the trauma. You're always bigger and larger than your trauma. This is so important. You were sent into these places in order to transform them. But you are not the darkness. You were sent into the darkness. And the third point I would make is, I think very helpful for joy is, joy is really a natural state. To find joy, you don't create joy. You just have to let go of everything else. The natural place of a person is, you're aligned with your essence, and that's full of joy. Like children. Children are naturally happy. The Pasuk says, In God's space, there's confidence and joy. The moment you're in a God space, there's confidence and there's joy. The reason I am not happy, the reason I am miserable is because there are other thoughts about who I am that are interfering. They're creating static. And the more you could let go of those thoughts, and the more you can just be, the more you will allow divine joy to flow through you, literally like music flows through the violin or through the cello or through the guitar. Now, this is easier said than done. This is avoida. This takes work. But the work is really let go of everything. Maybe you have to breathe. Maybe you need to meditate. Maybe you need to pray. Whatever it is for you. But it's really a very internal process of work where you let go of all your thoughts about who you are, who you're not, the expectations, the pressures, the messages that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And you just allow yourself to be a conduit. The Pasuk says, and the Magad of Mizrich says, means when the Menagin becomes the Nigan. Next question. How do you make sense of the appearance of a lack of concern for the lives of our fellow Jews by not following even the most basic rules regarding COVID, like, for example, the huge weddings in Borough Park, funerals in Israel, were commanded. Were commanded to be Michael Yom Kippur to save. We commanded to be Michael Yom Kippur to save one life. If you can address this specifically here in Canada, we are quite restrained with lockdowns, traveling restrictions. It makes it so painful. We are apart from our children. We're separated from our children. This causes sadness. 
give us insight and give us an uplifting uplifting message. Also, what is your opinion about yeshivas and Beis Yaakov's not using Zoom to enhance learning? Does that make sense? Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that didn't come through the moderator. That must have gone directly to you. Okay, I'll I'll be I'll be I'll be very brief about all of these things. Um, of course, every person has the utmost responsibility to be sensitive to the health and the concern of other people's lives. Uh, that's no question about it, and it's very upsetting when anybody is doing anything that is irresponsible and uh, could, God forbid, cause someone else to 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 fall ill or chas v'shalom. To die. The only thing I would say is, and this is in no, by no means taking a side or justifying anything, is that there are those groups of Jews who are arguing that, especially for children and teenagers, the isolation is more damaging than anything else. And because the pandemic, thank God, has proven not to hurt that age, they feel that keeping those children and teenagers, Bahram or girls, on lockdown they feel is spiritually, psychologically, and physically very, very damaging. And there is a point, because children, when they're locked up for so many months, and Bahram and girls, it's not easy, and therefore they're arguing that uh, the fact that there was such a lockdown, closing down all the schools, and the Bahram can go to yeshiva, and girls can go to school, and kids can go to school, they feel was very, very damaging. And I understand that perspective very well, and you have to figure out how to work around it. But of course, to endanger the lives of people who are vulnerable, is not just wrong, but is, is, is absolutely wrong. But I'm just bringing out the fact that, you know, that to, to, to put everybody on lockdown for such a long time, including the children and the boys, many communities, especially Hasidic communities, I know here in Muncie, they said, they t- people told me that, uh, that, 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 you know, their leaders felt that the damage of that, the mental damage and the physical damage and the addictions that happen and the lack of a social life is worse than everything. And therefore they try to completely, to, to not lock down that age. The fact that people are insensitive when it comes to older people and people who are more vulnerable, that I don't understand. In terms of the stress, it's a very difficult time. Listen, uh, you know, we all have to be here for each other. And it's important to be very introspective and to find your own inner resources, your own relationships with yourself and with your spouse and with your children and with God in a way that you may have never found it before. This is a time to really reevaluate our priorities and to go deep inside. And what I would suggest is every day call three people who may need encouragement, either a Zoom or FaceTime or telephone or text or whatever, and encourage them. You'll see that by bringing joy to other people, you will uplift yourself. So if you're finding it hard, be there for other people. You could just take a telephone call or whatever, any other, make a telephone call or any other way, and you'll find it very, very meaningful. But we have to be here for each other. I would also connect, suggest that you use your time productively. It's important to eat well, to take walks. Remember, sunrise is not on lockdown. Sunset is not on lockdown. Love is not on lockdown. Imagination is not on lockdown. Learning is not on lockdown. Davening is not on lockdown. Relationships are not on lockdown. Also, another thing is, if you have good favorite teachers, men or women, Spend time with them. Today with the internet, you could learn from every Rebbe or Rebbetson in the world. Take a half an hour a day, an hour a day, two hours a day. Use this time. Learn, study, explore, grow. And, uh, and, and find that meaning in your life that you need. In fact, of the policies with Zoom, 
It's really not in my authority to be able to give an opinion. I mean, every school has its policies. Listen, at the surface, Zoom is amazing. But their concern is that once you open up a whole world of children to the internet, who knows what's going to happen with teenagers. The fact is that many teenagers over the last year have become addicted to immodest websites. And they're worried about that. Is there a way around that? Maybe there is a way around that, but it's a complicated situation. The internet is an unbelievable blessing, but it can also pose an unbelievable challenge. And we have to weigh both sides and weigh both sides very carefully. I would not easily dismiss one side and say it's ludicrous because the amount of addictions to screen, gaming addiction, screen addiction, pornography addiction, and these things has shot up very high recently, and there's a concern there. So we have to be very wise, very, very wise. I my, my kids have a school, my kids have a school they go to, and that school has a policy that they will not do Zoom with our computers. They have their own Chromebooks that they have, that they're responsible on, that they're responsible for, and they give it out when, uh, well, we're not on lockdown here with schools, but they give it out to the children because they did not want to trust the home computer. They will not do Zoom on any home computer or laptop. Just an interesting policy. And my kid was sick, and he couldn't, he couldn't go to school. And the principal said, I'm sorry. I know, I'm, not, I'm not suspecting you, but I have to make this policy because of the stories that are going on. You know, I had to respect that, and I understood him very well. Yosef Zalman, I want to come at Yosef Ika Yosef Zalman, meet Yosef Yitzchak. Uh, this is a market here in Toronto. It gives Daf Yomi every day. Pleasure. A question or a comment for Rabbi Jacobson? Certainly you're discussed every, day, every other day, Rabbi Jacobson. I just want you to know. I hope in a nice way. I hope in a nice way, yeah? Of course. If there's a trending now in here, your names would be up there as part of the search. But go ahead, Yossi. Well, truthfully, one of the anonymous questions that Rabbi Jacobson just addressed, I said, hey, Okay, but there's but there is so much more to ask, and I, I love the idea uh, that you mentioned: call three people every day to try to promote something. But what what, what can we do in the semester where people are are staying far apart because we have to remain isolated? How can we create a ruach of yishmak, a ruach of simchah Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question, and I think it's extremely important. We have to come up with innovative ways. Maybe that at every tefillah to ask one of the people to prepare a good story or a geshmaka anecdote, number one. Number two, I think it's good to introduce nigunim, singing and dancing, even if it's with social distancing. People in their own places can sing and dance. We have to get out of our self-conscious modes. A lot of our shuls and communities, especially among the we Ashkenazic, are very self-conscious. Uh, you know, we're a little up. So I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about uh, what I have seen. You know, we're uptight. If somebody sings L'chadoidi for an extra 20 seconds, they want to know what drugs he's taking. Uh, if somebody's smiling too much, they want to know, you know, if he's on Prozac. Uh, if somebody is too friendly, you know, what happened to him. And I think we have to liberate ourselves from that because it's it's, it's very enslaving. We're afraid uh, We're afraid of our shadows. And for the youth, it's also not healthy. So I think we have to become less inhibited. We have to be able to share love and to take love and to give love. We have to become sources of love. I think everyone in the shul needs to realize that it's a time 
when we have to be there for each other. And I think Nigunim, singing, dancing, even if it's in our own place, it has an impact. And like the Chsefer Achinuch says, You start with the feet, and the heart follows the feet. You don't always have to feel it. Uh, those are some of the ideas that I would suggest. The Hasidim would, of course, offer hot soup and food, but I don't know if Toronto health officials allow that. Food is, uh, is always welcome. Good Chodesh to everybody. I wish you all bracha and atzlacha ad blidai. May the Zlatnik family, Weissman family, only have extremely happy occasions. May time Cheshabbos go from strength to strength to be able to make sure everybody has everything they need. And may the entire Toronto community be blessed with Shefa, Bracha, Vatzlocha, Ad Bli Dai, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.